the capacity for empathy and compassion, for spaciousness and calm, is the missing piece in the struggle with our climate, environmental, and social circumstances. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute in which we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good to help us all see more clearly and act more courageously in times of great change. And every so often on this show, I put myself in the hot seat uh, and I turn the microphone on myself and I do my own talk about what I think could possibly go right. And uh, I was tempted to write this out and I did write it out and <laughs> scratch it out, but I'm gonna just try to talk through this because uh, it's been very, very hard for me to do this. And quite honestly, because I've gotten majorly pissed at the world, at people, people who theoretically agree with me and don't agree with me, at the weeds of my garden, and it's a miracle I have any friends anymore. Uh, and it all started about five years ago, really, um, before the election of Trump, when I started, when I discovered that the um, jet pilot training in the, uh, the, from the Naval Air Station um, was right over our best farmland. And I've been working on issues of local food and I thought, you know, no, no, you can't have our farmland. And so I worked for several years uh, with a group of people, very, very smart and committed people to stop that training over our farmland. And as it turned out over the national forest, the Olympic National Forest and the National Park, and even though we played by the rules, we lost the game. At least we've lost it temporarily. And so that was just exhausting and um, dispiriting. And then, of course, we had Trump's election and the, the killing, the, literally killing of, of so many of the protections of what I love, which is people in nature. And then, you know, we had the election, which, and, and um, Biden won, but we had January 6th and we have the big lie. And uh, now we have, we had a few months of respite and now we have the rallies and the um, dawn of the Republicans asserting his control. So, I mean, it's just been, um, I felt impotent. I, I've, I felt like I, I, everything is consequential and I can't do anything about it. And so that just got me in this really pissed off state. Um, and so um, trying to get out of it, because realizing it was um, really toxifying my whole being, it wasn't sort of localized in a in particular incident. It was just a, a way I was being, I wrote, because I like to write and I like to write funny things. I wrote this and I'm gonna read it to you. Um, it is, uh, what is the female version of grumpy old man? I'm turning 76 and whatever it is, I think I'm getting there. Is it vain old woman? <laughs> Look at my ankles after 12 hours of elevation to deflate the souffle that puffs up out of my shoes. Thin as the day I was married. Oh, and pointing to the bits of skeletons still angling uh, out of the sags and bags. Well, look at those collarbones, Jaja Gabor, right? And those cheekbones sucking in my cheeks, which is unnecessary as I've got two craters exposed as my tire face surrenders to gravity. Or is it 
the nasty old woman. Well, when I was a girl, we never. Well, that's it. Next stop, nasty old lady. Far enough into dementia to lose civilized filters about what comes out of her mouth. Well, this nasty old lady is tired of reading news bulletins about global sizzling and saying, I told you that 30 years ago. I am tired of quoting myself when yet one more millennial throws up a Wix website, branding herself as a minimalist and blogging about her latest insight about enoughness. TM moi. Uh, my hair is frizzled because it's on fire. I'm tired of high paid consultants declaring that sustainability is out and regeneration is in, knowing that regeneration will soon be as greenwashed a buzzword as sustainability was in the 90s. No sooner grumbled and heard by the ever-listening Google, up pops an ad for an agrochemical company with a picture of work-hardened hands in loamy soil declaring their commitment to, wait for it, regeneration. Don't get me started, I say, and then I start anyway. I remember back 30 years ago when I gathered a dozen um, authors of books, yes, books, dearie, no websites then, about simplicity to turn it into a kick-ass movement rather than a trend. I remember two years later when Real Simple, the focus group manufactured glossy magazine with more ads than content, stole our two most potent words out from under us to sell perfume. Back in the day, I watch aghast this sentence hurtling from my mouth. Back when sustainability was new and radical, we dreamed of being on all decision makers' lips. In fact, nasty old lady, filter's gone, does say that. And then I launch into, I was there when the Brundtland Commission report, oh, you never heard of that? landed in the United States. Of course you know about the Club of Rome report, limits to growth, no. I want to electrify my already dyed, uh, dried out crown of gray hair and scream, you young people, we knew 50 F-bomb years ago that this day would come when we'd be 8 billion people on a depleted planet. And off goes granny, the grandkids inching away as she keeps muttering, back in the day, we didn't have computers, we typed on typewriters. Oh, back then phones had cords and books had covers and we still F-bomb made a revolution. I'm a regular nasty Jill in the box. At the slightest provocation, out pops the nasty old lady with another diatribe. Next thing you know, I'll be saying whippersnapper, wet behind the ears, and you think you're so all fired smart. I remember the first meeting of Clinton's President's Council on Sustainable Development that was in Seattle when my Sustainable Seattle team, new and certain of imminent success, um, were there. The heads of environmental organizations and the heads of major corporations gathered around the same table, politely puzzling through how some could keep profiting and some keep attracting donors while all sounding like they're rising to the sober equation of disaster on the horizon. Then a young aide brought up the R word, redistribution, sharing the wealth. Well, before she could say the M word, moderation, or the L word, less, the corporate representatives reared up in their seats in perfect water ballet synchronization and said, well, 
if that's what we're talking about, we're leaving. Oh, don't get me started. Well, you say I already got myself started. You say I'm building up to a rant again. You say, oh, wait, did you say, okay, boomer and leave the room while I put on my mean squint waggling my finger at you? Deflated, I cry. See, underneath every nasty old lady is a crestfallen idealist grieving for how muddy dreams dribble, dribble into meager rivulets, despairing as a new generation up against everything she tried to prevent, climbs the same mountain, but has to drive an Uber on the side. And then having dropped past fury and down past grief, I arrive at amazement at how much smarter, more informed and more strategic the current crop of hair on fire youth of many colors are a massive army of unstoppables going with their spears right to the heart of the zombie financial system, right to the guts of the grumpy old men running extractive industries. They are as intent as I was on killing the beast that is killing us. And so I take my bony fingers and I snap open my little leather change purse and I send as much support as I can their way, leaving enough in there, of course, for a birthday present for me, maybe purple hair or a tattoo. So that was <laughs> that was how I, I bled off some of the energy. But knowing I had to somehow find my way out of this endemic um, fury that was coursing through me, I remembered the serenity prayer. And um, perhaps you all know it, but God grant me the serenity to change the things I can, the patience to accept the things I cannot change and the wisdom to know the difference. But I was more like Angela Davis, you know, who was credited with saying, I'm done accepting the things I cannot change. I'm into changing the things I cannot accept. And that's been me and that's led me down this path. Uh, and uh, but, you know, what I realized is even though I'm pretty sure I'm right, which, of course, <laughs> we all think, right? Um, but if I keep this attitude, I'm going to burn up or burn out or burn through friends. Um, so I've, in this process, I've developed four acceptances. And it's not, it's not been a mental process. It's just that groping along the path, this is what showed up. And the first one was, I can accept the unacceptable, not because it's acceptable, but because it's what is. Don't fight with reality, Vicki. You know, number one, the future I work for, the one I think is the right future, is not the, work, the future everybody wants, honestly. And it's, you know, honestly, it's informed by my age, my race, my gender, my privilege, my, my generation, my moment in time, it's not universal. So it's not reality. It's a piece of reality, a little piece, but it's not reality. I um, feel like William Buckley, who said when he started um, his National Review magazine, and he, if, for those of you who don't know, he was an arch conservative, and he was so smart <laughs> that you'd never want to argue with him. He said, the purpose of this magazine is to stand athwart history and yell stop. 
And fundamentally, that's what I wanted to do. I want to stand athwart history and stop injustice, climate change, uh, wealth gap, overconsumption. I mean, you name it. I have been standing there athwart history trying to stop it. And then the next acceptance was really humility. And that's the question, what can I really change after all? And first of all, I can change myself, not necessarily the basic architecture of my personality, because that's just sort of there, like my hair color and my skeleton, but I can change my attitudes. I can change my behavior. I can change my um, shallow but uh, angry thinking, and I can think more critically, read more widely, um, gain more compassion. Uh, and I can, I can actually, without the anger, I might be able to affect more than I can with it. Um, and then the third thing, and I used to say this to people who were really upset and up against it, you know, I used to call it pouring in time. Uh, that, you know, I'm sort of, I'm as angry as I was, and it was really, although, you know, there's plenty there to go around. It's like I am liver, living in a sliver of time and the, um, the stakes seem really high because the, it's the time frame is so narrow. It's like sort of a, a, a box canyon, if you will, or, you know, a chute, you know, if you're whitewater rafting. And, you know, the fact is that hundreds of civilizations have risen and fallen. Why should I think ours is any different? Uh, and um, the, um, the dinosaurs dominated the earth for about 170 million years and humans have been here 300,000 years, not, you know, just sort of a, a sliver in time for our whole species. Agriculture began 10,000 years ago. And um, the industrial revolution, which we sort of like, like leapt out of the bounds of what our physical energy or our work animals could do is only 300 years old. We are a very, 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 very young species. And we're a learning species with a long way to go to develop the moral capacity to channel the energies that we have captured from the sun and the sun. Yeah. And then the other thing I realize is that, you know, I really don't have agency over the future. I have agency over what I do in the moment that will affect the future because everything affects everything else, but I don't have the power to assure that the changes I want to, I work for actually will get anchored in the future. I don't. And I think about my great grandmother who um, had to take her husband out to the territories, that's Arizona, to heal his TB. Um, and what would my world look like to my great grandmother? And so what is the world that our great, 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 great grandchildren will be living in? And of course, right now we feel a tremendous amount of fear about that because we wanna protect them and we can't. But in fact, this really has always been so. People have always felt a concern about the unknown future and, and, a, and a prediction that it will be, you know, 
some are like, you know, positivity junkies, but, you know, many people have felt very nervous that it's, you know, it's all going hell in a handbasket. Um, and so I realized that it is, you know, we talk as activists about the end of the world as we know it, you know, as like crisis after crisis, you know, I remember Y2K, that's when I learned that term. Oh, my, you know, it's like the computer system that runs everything is going to break down. And it didn't. And so I realized that, you know, we use that term to frighten ourselves and to motivate ourselves. But in fact, every moment is the end of the world as we know it. Um, yeah, that the world I was born into is not the world I'm going to die out of. And that's just a fact. Uh, and so how much control do I really have? Spiritually, they say, trust the process. And I've lived long enough to see amazing, amazing changes in culture and politics, even given the current mess. And my fourth realization um, has been that the only constant is change. You know, everything's changing. Everything is changing in every moment. A lot of our angst um, are at a most profound level, our fear of death is the fear of change. Um, the fear that we are out of control of change. Uh, I, I love Octavia Butler who um, embedded in her books, the power, the uh, parable of the sower and the parable of the talents, this um, spiritual book called that was called earth seed and, and the primary, the prime directive, if you will, is all that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. So I'm healing my mind. And I actually think that that's like sort of number one on what could possibly go right. Um, in my interviews, it's become clearer and clearer to me that the people who can feel the world are the ones who are more accurate, most accurate in their work to heal the world. And that very often it's the deepest crises of feeling, of despair, that bring the greatest change, that bring the greatest clarity. I mean, that's happened in my own life. I, you know, I've had many, many crises, but the one I would mention right now is that I had cancer and it really unraveled many of my presumptions and showed me some of the very deepest motivations of my being and changed me. It really changed me. Uh, and so if we can endure the feeling of confronting a world that is rapidly changing and our minds being fearful of the direction of that change, I think we can, our interventions, including mine, are going to be more accurate to what is actually needed. Uh, that the capacity for empathy and compassion for spaciousness and calm is the missing piece in the struggle with our climate environmental and social circumstances. Uh, and I feel quite assured that this process of acceptance, which is, I think gonna take me the rest of my life, 
is it will lead me to the kind of clarity that will lead me to investing my life energy, however much I have, in interventions that actually produce positive change um, in the hearts and minds of others, you know, without attachment, without trying to control results. So there you go. That's my personal healing. And I had to tell you that because I had to get to it to do my response to the question, what could possibly go right? Uh, and I started what could possibly go right to help direct change. I used the, uh, who was it? Uh, Milton Friedman quote that, um, that all change happens in crisis. So, and in crisis, the direction of change is influenced by the ideas that are lying around. So I thought I'm going to interview people and get a whole bunch of really good ideas lying around. Uh, and um, I actually know, I mean, it's been, you know, it's been a contribution, at least to, I know tens of thousands of people have listened to our episodes. Uh, but I think I still was suffering from my assumption of driving change in the direction I wanted it to go. And, and, and by now, you know, being despairing one more time about the failure to have the results I wanted in the time frame I wanted. Uh, so here are some things that I think uh, are very promising, um, setting aside all the things that we know are going awry. And one thing is that I've learned I've learned over my lifetime, this is like the positive, the ungrumpy old lady, um, that movements take at least 10 to 20 and sometimes more years uh, before politicians claim them as their own, like their own good idea. I've seen that happen in my own work. Um, and just one example right now, I've been watching the uh, struggle for businesses to take to get employees to return to work and they're having trouble. Uh, and now I'm reading that more and more companies are following the lead of Amazon for whatever reason they did that, but they're following Amazon's lead and they're offering $15 an hour and beginning to attract workers back. And, uh, you know, this has been the fight for 15, has been at least a decade old, maybe longer. Uh, and when it started, it seemed like exaggerated. Like everybody said, oh, well, 725, we can't go right to 15. How about 895? You know, it's like, we have to do it stepwise. And the pandemic just, just revealed that people do not want to go back to minimum wage jobs that do not support a living, do not support them in, in paying their rent and, and having food. They, they don't want that. They don't want to be peons anymore in this industrial this sort of <laughs> what we used to call making a dying system. Um, and, you know, there's been lots of theories about why not, you know, and, oh, well, they're still getting checks. As soon as they don't get their checks, they're going to come back for minimum wage. Uh, but I'm not so sure about that. I think that childcare has been really influential. People can't go back to work if they're still educating their kids at home. And getting kids back to school uh, is being difficult. Uh, 
you know, it's, it's not an easy task. Um, and so then I think a lot of people have used this time. My cat has arrived. So she's now, uh, she now wants to be part of this. So here we go. Here's Bella. Um, yeah, she'll be here for a while and then she'll be bored and she'll go. Yeah. But I think that a lot of people took the time and the little income and retrained. So they, they have trained themselves for better jobs. And so they're not going to go back to the minimum wage jobs uh, or the, the soul destroying jobs. They're just not going to do it. Or people have figured out how to, how to take their work online. I mean, just, just the monetizing TikTok and meet and medium is, is, you know, people are making a lot of money online and they don't need to go to industrial workplace um, for an income or just that the pay is too little for the toll it takes on the body. So now it's just, they're offering signing bonuses, of several thousand dollars and $15 an hour and guaranteed uh, that they're not gonna be, you know, bosses, if you will, are not gonna be able to take that away because once we had social security, that is like the third rail of politics. You cannot take that away and actually get elected again. So I think this $15, minimum wage is a positive byproduct of this year and a half pause from the old paradigm of work and spend and work and spend and work and spend and retire and go to your grave. Um, and then I, I, I also see that this is, this year has been a surfacing, you know, a sort of front and center of several rights movements that have, you know, been in the wings um, and civil rights, of course, has been in the, you know, bat has been a battle almost for the history of our country. Uh, but I think Black Lives Matter has taken things beyond, um, yeah, it's taken uh, things wider and broader. I don't think it's gonna go back in the closet, the racial justice issues. Um, and you know, indigenous rights, you know, so colonialism and racism have been in exploitation are really revealed. I mean, the apocalypse, I mean, this has seemed like apocalyptic. Apocalypse means the great revealing, the revealing of the underbelly of this of the sins that have been under this, this sort of civilized um, surface. And so the pushback, you know, is uh, is not just a failure, it's evidence that these rights um, movements are gaining power. Uh, and I think the other one that, that's really interesting now is trans rights, you know, the, the, the right of people to transcend the social cultural definitions of what it means to be a man or a woman, to be able to look within and sense their own truth and live their truth uh, and not be coerced into living a truth that comes out of a patriarchal society. Uh, and so I, I think that's starting to really grab hold and, and the number of people really having you know the 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 uh, surgeries to to change their um, biological um, sexual equipment uh, is much less than the people who are very 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 committed 
to this right for self-definition around love. Uh, and so I think that's not going to go away. Uh, and I, you know, I see that, that like intersectionality was like, you know, four or five years ago or whenever, whenever I encountered it, it was sort of a confusing word. And I'm a, I'm a writer and I sort of wanted people to change it to something that was more apprehendable. <laughs> but um, I think it's now really anchored in so many of the movements for justice is the realization that even though the presenting cause, whether it's, you know, Me Too or BLM or, you know, whatever these things are, what the presenting cause is, it is really that we're all working against an outdated, outmoded paradigm that must fail to liberate the creative energies of humanity. And that's not said with any malice. It's just sort of a necessity. It's sort of part of the cycle, the creative cycle, which is creation and destruction that supports new creation. So I just think we understand where we are so much better. And the other thing is, you know, whether you love Zoom or hate Zoom or Zoomed out, you know, which is a new word in our vocabulary, uh, we are connected by a technology at a level that, that was beyond our wildest dreams. I keep thinking about, you know, I, I lived when we only could write letters and then we had facts, you know, and the, we, you know, the, the upheaval in Russia that, that sort of ended the Soviet Union, a lot of it was, was enabled by fax machines, which were like modern tools. Uh, and so I think this capacity to feel the lives of people who are halfway around the world, so many people I know comment that, you know, when they used to do a workshop, maybe a hundred people could show up or, you know, max. And now they're doing workshops with 10,000 people from all over the world. And we're being able, you know, on these little squares on the screen, um, I told you she would get bored with me. Uh, we're being able to see people and their facial expressions from all over the world and hear what they're talking about, about their own experience. Peter Russell years and years and years and years and years ago posited that we are growing something that he called the global brain, that basically we're, we're all part of sort of a nervous system of uh, the planet, of certainly of humanity, but of the planet. We're a nervous system that's growing and, and, and we will be able to be sufficiently connected and interconnected and interintelligence and interbeing to be able to think together, to be able to be the thinking, feeling element of Gaia herself, of the planet herself. And back when I first heard that, I thought I was so idealistic and I thought that is really beautiful. I hope we can get there. And I actually think that technology, which is very amoral and we have a lot of work to do on, on making it uh, beneficial for all, uh, but it's really taking us into a necessary step for becoming what some people call a planetary species rather than balkanized, you know, competing and warring um, tribal groups uh, that, you know, we've been there before. What's missing, of course, is high touch locally and the resurgence of the, of the pandemic makes it difficult again. But I can say that 
uh, some of the rituals in my local community are uh, returning, you know, going to cafes. And I'm, I'm part of a community that does um, ecstatic dance on Sundays. And it was like the, the, the biggest love bomb of my week. And that's back. We're outside and dancing, but the experience is coming back. Uh, and I think that, you know, like what could possibly go right, you know, what is possible is whoever is creating ways for people to connect locally uh, and to increase the amount of social creativity um, and, and cultural uh, liveliness, whether it's theater or the arts or festivals or you know, sailing regattas or whatever it is, you know, humans love to be together. And when we're together, you know, not being run by, you know, the people above us who want to um, channel us into war, when we're together, we have a good time, you know, maybe the future can be a picnic. Um, and so another one that I see is that climate change is squarely on the map. And, you know, Climate denial, one of the ways that movements work is that the old way isn't suppressed, it's just delegitimized. And I think that's happening with climate denial. I mean, it doesn't mean that we're going to pull our chestnuts out of the fire. I mean, people have predictions about the future and they're all pretty dire. Um, and um, and then I, I think another one is that we're, People are way more passionate politically. Of course, we're polarized, you know, so the, the passions are zeroing each other out and, and making you know our, our collective life feel very dangerous and frightening. Uh, we're afraid of a of a tendency toward authoritarianism and and sort of fascistic tendencies. But again, you know, the, the jury is out, the stakes are high. But the amount of pushback against democracy is evidence that uh, we're winning. <laughs> you know, not we, you know, as in we and them, but that 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 self-governance uh, of we the people, which was an ideal when this country started, is is being filled out now by people's participation. And we always wonder why are not people in the United States on the streets because egregious things are happening, but we are. Now it's not only in the streets, but in the halls of power. <laughs> I just read today, um, apparently there's an election in Boston. For, I think it's for mayor and there's no white men running. Women, people of color, that's happening. Um, so a final thought is that um, I can see things going right, not as in results, but as in trends, as in movement. Uh, and I can add my energy to that. And that's all we've ever said with what could possibly go right is we're saying, you know, what are the, what are the things that are emerging that we can cooperate with? Uh, and not to bang on, on history or the future and make our, ideas, the ideas that stick and stick forever, because that's delusional, but that we can work with the trends and forces and energies that are emerging in our world. And we can notice, um, 
we can see evidence of that, you know, in these movements for democracy and, and rights, et cetera. And we can align with it and, and <laughs> go with the flow, not buck reality and stand athwart history yelling stop. So finally, I'd just like to share uh, some of the words of I.F. Stone, which have always inspired me. Um, he said, the only kinds of fights worth fighting are those you're going to lose because somebody has to fight them and lose and lose and lose until someday somebody who believes at you as you do wins. And then this is another one that, that inspired me for years. If you expect to see the final results of your work, you simply have not asked a big enough question. And finally, I want to share with you a poem I wrote. Um, this is our wind-up, in case you're wondering. A poem I wrote uh, for a collection of essays uh, that was published in the year 2000, asking a lot of people their visions for the future. And I ended up writing this poem. It's called, Could We Be Happy? October 17th, 1999. And we will all be noisy. We will gather in the streets talking about recipes and politics and philosophy and love. We will show each other our bruises with the innocence of children. Convinced of our safety, we will smile as though anyone can be a friend. The malls will be commons of kindness with shops for healing broken hearts and stands for conversation breaks. The poor won't be so poor and we'll invite the rich to lunch. No one will feel left out. The natural world will hum with life, giving itself to life for the sake of life, just like in the old days. Every species will have a human who, like an older brother, helps you cross the divide between death and deliverance. We will hear the sounds of animals and trees and have the distinct impression that we understand. We will see paw prints and want to follow. We will walk in silence, worshiping. Oh, we will worship shamelessly everywhere. As we get the morning paper, we will kiss the ground and greet the sun. We will chant morning prayers in a thousand tongues right here on our doorstoops. We will say rosaries and make prayer ties, on, prayer ties on the bus in the morning and do business as if we will live a thousand lifetimes with the outcomes of our actions. We will admit that we are hopelessly in love with the divine divine. Yes, we will be showered with blessings and drip with wet gratitude. We will all have enough. We will all have hope, even the poor, poor who didn't choose to be poor. Our imaginations will be on fire with what if, as if no one had told us to forget it and fail gracefully. No life will be capped with despair, no child unloved and crying naked and dirty. Even the rich will want to live in such a world, will want to come into the street and sing and drink beer. And the guards and the prisoners will tell stories of childhood until they become brothers. And that tight place in our chests where our hearts are in hiding will soften and melt and we will finally be free. Thank you. 
Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com. <laughs>